you know, and it took me a while to get used to that. You know, it took me a while. And then after a while, nothing can bother you, but you have to be thrown in that fire and then you have to see how you react to it. And if you want to do that, you can learn how to toughen yourself and harden yourself, but um, it's not for everyone. Welcome to the Pure Golf Collective. We are your hosts, Carter Bennett and John Roy. Together through this, we bring a new lens on themes of development, performance, and process. The idea of the collective is to investigate and celebrate the intrinsic values of golfers and the obsession to the purity of the game. The collective is not just who we hear on this podcast, but any person invested into growth and connection to golf. We are golfers celebrating all that is pure in the game we love. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Pure Golf Collective. We are on episode 11 on this Sunday of the Masters Tournament. This week, we have another special guest joining us for a discussion on his journey through high-level competition and coaching in the tennis landscape john sorbo it is also masters weekend today being the final round always one of the best days in golf the back nine at augusta always has lots of excitement and keeps you on the edge of your seat right down to the last putt of the day i know there's a lot of excitement in the pure golf collective We have the Fantasy Tour this week with the event and also the first major pool of the season following the same format as the league, which has been very popular thus far. I thought I would start off today with a little fun story from this past week when I had the opportunity to get out on the golf course. So Dutch and I head over to Lakeview Golf Club. We got paired up with two lovely ladies who didn't speak much English and they knew what they were doing out there. It was fantastic. We had fun. They did their thing. We kind of did our thing, but like awkwardly kind of mingled, you know, they're, they very, very broken yeah. English. Nice putt, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, uh, those types of things. Ah, yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. it was, it was fun. <laughs> and <laughs> 16th hole, it was crazy windy. So one of the ladies has her push cart and, you know, she's got the big bag with all the clubs and the snacks and the water bottles everything's just stuffed in this cart like it's just massive right it catches wind catches the wind and it starts cruising i'm on the putting green i'm like cart no no start sprinting start sprinting this thing just wheels into the creek just boom Uh, over the edge (laughs) drops down into the creek i love it i'm like four steps away from saving it so like naturally i get down and uh pull her bag out of the cart well i have to take the bag off the cart pull the bag out it's like just spewing water out of it and then i get the cart out and then there's some stuff floating so then she ended up taking her shoes off and having to go in the creek to get some of her other like belongings that were kind of floating along in the middle of the creek there are iron head covers and like i was like i'm not taking my shoes awesome. off and pulling my <laughs> my pants up to go get yeah, these iron head it. covers but she was adamant to do it and she did it and uh so she gathers all of her things and obviously we set up a huge delay behind us so 
Dutch and I go up to the next hole where, and they're like, Oh, thank you. Thank you. And like, like it kind of seemed like they were just like packing it in. And so we were kind of confused as to what they were doing, to be honest. And we just went ahead and teed off on 17 as a short little par three. And by the time we finished up, got back down our bags, they caught up to us and like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to go ahead. Uh, Okay, cool. This ladies whose stuff was literally just floating and sinking in the, in the river is finishing out her round. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Grinding it. Finishes 17, finishes 18, like great day and just packs up her things and off she goes. Beautiful. Fantastic. And it's been nice weather too. Eh? Like that's fantastic. Just a, a funny day. And it just kind of came all together at the end of the round. It's just a beautiful fashion. Uh, and just when she, when she just trooped it out, Dutch and I were just that's hysterical. Awesome. We were just that's like awesome. astonished. It was so cool to see. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I definitely thought that was a, a fun one to share with the collective. You know, those two ladies would have uh, been a perfect fit into this community for sure moving on we have obviously the masters weekend upon us and it's masters sunday one of the best spectacles in sport to be fair i think and uh especially for us golfers i really don't think it gets better than this there are other sporting events super bowls stanley cup finals you know all all great in their own right but the but the masters there's just something about it and john i know you're a huge fan of the masters you've been down there before you've had a pool for the gpc community for as long as gpc has been around been important you to celebrate this weekend what is it about the masters for you that uh just really is so special that's an interesting question um the masters is so cool because it's the same place year after year and therefore it's like it's like rereading the same book over and over and over but the characters change and stuff like it's really neat you know so the same scenarios and yet done from different perspectives really cool that way um it also is some of the fondest memories you know of of my young life was this time of year a time of renewal seasons in canada all of that kind of stuff and this was all the masters was always the time where i would take a a a bag of old ratty golf balls with my next door neighbor and we'd bike over to the local muni that had snowbanks everywhere and we'd kind of hit between the snowbanks from you know patch of grass to patch of grass a patch of grass and then bike home and watch olathobel and faldo and and couples kind of go at it and bernard longer and, and all of those legends and stuff so i think it's just a it's a rite of passage. It's a it's a it's a tradition. It's uh it's a yearly renewal. It's a perennial, uh you know all of those kind of things. That's what that's what's so masterful for me for it. Secondly, most important thing about it is the back nine at Augusta on Sunday is extraordinary because of the tactical um, opportunities. It's a it's a it, you can get it. Uh, we had mm-hmm. a we even uh, you know in the in the early rounds there'll be guys who shoot 63s and 64s and 65s and all of this kind of stuff and you never know i remember when i went to it i remember bo Bo van pelt went out and shot 29 on the back nine kind of thing early round he wasn't in contention but kind of surged up the leaderboard pretty nice that day and all that so you know you know you never know who it's going to be but you can kind of catch fire you get a hole in one on 16 and an eagle on 13 and 15 and all of this kind of stuff and i'm not saying that's common but it can happen and happened so it's just a wonderful theater for like watching great players throw darts and score and all of that stuff this year it looks like they're they're making it up toughed up a little bit eh so there's yeah. theater in that too 
you know, well, 15 I think, plays firm, it, it's a different when it bounces off the back, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now you're thinking about maybe I should just lay up and hit a wedge in there the old fashioned way. Yeah. Yeah. There was also something for me similar to you, John, with the masters as a, as a young golfer and kind of the kickoff to the season. Uh, and my young age, it was hockey, hockey, hockey all the time. And especially in the winter months, but once the masters rolled around and the Masters Sunday, watching it with the family religiously, it was the start to the, the the golf season. The golf clubs were coming out, they were getting cleaned, and it was very shortly after that heading to the dome or the range and hopefully the golf course opening up not too much after that and getting reacquainted and re-engaged back into the golf experience. So definitely holds uh, some some value and meaning to me and my golf journey as well. Moving forward with uh, today's episode, another really special guest, awesome discussion, two Johns going at it for a little bit here, talking uh, high level performance, but also elite level coaching as well. John Sorbo was a top tennis professional before his career was derailed by persistent illnesses that were never truly solved but was matched to his energy levels and stress levels that pursuing professional sports can bring upon any person. Pivoting into the coaching world, he didn't have much motivation to pursue the high-level player, just wanted to engage with tennis players and make them better however he could and not having to get into those deeper, more hands-on high-level development pursuits but like most things in life when you're good at something you generally get some recognition and he was well connected in the in the tennis community and slowly immersed himself into the elite development programs in the Canadian tennis landscape in the discussion you're going to hear you know some of his systematic approaches for the development of skills and how he felt he excelled as a coach for high performers who are willing to train at the highest uh, levels with the most intensity. What's also great about John is he has become a passionate golfer later in his life to much of his regret, and he has been able to carry his mindset and skills to his golf journey. Much of what he pursued and did in his tennis career, he has transitioned and brought into his golf career and has some really cool insights for us golfers who are out there grinding, as it were, trying to become their best selves more often on the golf course. So without further ado, let's get into the discussion with John Sorbo. I don't know if you'd prefer to speak as an athlete or as a coach or as both. But if for a couple of minutes anyway, you could describe to us how the last 25 years have gone for you and, and where where you're kind of coming from, because I sit here on the other side of this call in, in awe of your accomplishments in a sense, uh, you know what I mean? Like a very respected coach who's you know got all the badges and accolades that you could want to get, a very uh, impressive athletic career uh, at the same time. But if you could speak a little bit to sort of how that all came about, I guess, you know, where, what was it like for you to, to become a high performance athlete? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I grew up in Florida uh, when I was 11 and a half, which is late for an athlete 
to start, I think, anything. But my sister got a tennis racket for Christmas, and I decided to take it one day. We had tennis courts, uh, public courts about, you know, within a half a mile of my house. So I just took a racket. I jogged down there first thing in the morning. It was like 7 a.m., and they had a hitting wall that was separate from five courts. You know, I figured ball, racket, strings, pretty simple what to do. And um, that was my first day. And about 10 minutes, uh, 15 minutes later, I just sat on the bench and I was watching these old guys. They were cleaning off the courts because it had rained the night before. So I went out and I helped them clean off the courts. And as I'm walking back to the you know cage to hit up against the wall, they said, where are you going? These are 80 year old guys, you know, and I'm an 11 year old kid. And they said, where are you going? I said, well, I was going to go back. And said, no, you help clean the court. You got to play. I didn't I didn't even know how to keep score. Yeah, <laughs> I just awesome. as a as a reasonably decent athlete, I saw, you know, there was lines and net ball. Got to get the ball over the net in the lines and we're all good. And that's how it started. Two weeks later, I ran home from the courts and told my parents very matter of factly that I was going to be a tennis professional. And um that was it. Within a year, I went from being an absolute beginner. I won one of the big local tournaments. And then in two years, I won a state sanctioned tournament. And within two and a half years, I was one of the best players in Florida. And so that's how it kind of started. I ended up being like three in Florida my last year. I competed in singles, number one in doubles. I was number one in the men's in Florida. I was seated number two at NCAA Division Two. When I played in college, my team won the national championship. I played number one for them in singles and doubles. Then I, um, I transitioned to the ATP tour. And um, my first uh, year, I went from zero to 300 in the world. And at the end of that first year, I got sick uh, with some mysterious, we don't know what it was. I Test after test, nobody could tell me. They said Epstein-Barr. They said uh, mono. They said hepatitis. They had no idea. Um, it took me about six, seven months to recover, came back. I started my ascent again, got sick again. That was like 85, 86, 87. So 88, I started again, my third time, uh, starting all over fresh. First tournament back, I went, I won five qualifying matches, three main draw matches, made the quarters my first time out, almost won that circuit. And um, then I got sick again. And that was it. I just I said, you know. But they couldn't tell me what it was. They couldn't tell me how to beat it. And the only thing they could come to terms with was that every time I was going to go back out, the stress of becoming a professional athlete, how hard we push our bodies, how hard we push our, our minds. Um, they just said it was going to be too much. It was going to happen again. So I retired, started um, coaching just for a living. I wouldn't teach juniors because I knew what that path was like. So I only taught recreational adults. Uh, that was in Palm Springs, California. I did that for five years and never coached a junior once, never coached a high performance player. I just didn't want anything to do with it. You know, I needed some time to decompress from being a player. And um, and it took me a long time to get over that as well, because, I mean, I beat, I'd say, at least 15 or 20 guys that were in the top 100 in the world in singles and, and tennis. And I mean, I honestly got like I, I'd open the paper and I'd see so-and-so mm -hmm. who I beat and he's in the quarters of the semis or winning this thing and that thing. It was hard to take, you know, I had a, that, that haunted me until I'd say mid thirties, you know, 
which is a pretty excessive. Maybe I should have had some therapy or something. <laughs> <laughs> There's a theme that's come up in other times where we kind of, when we're a young kid, we close our eyes and we picture being a professional. What do you, what do you think that meant to you? Like, or what did you see happening? Like, what, what, what were you hoping to get out of being a professional? I just knew it was my life. This is what I wanted to do. And two weeks in, you know, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. That racket it was in my hand and that's what I wanted to do, you know, and it was kind of, it was a whole life changing experience because I started to play and within a year, my grades went from straight A's to C's. And so my parents had the big talk with me, like, what the hell's going on? And I said, like, look, this is what I'm going to do. You know, it's what I'm going to do. And if some disaster befalls me physically, I said, I know enough right now to be able to teach the sport, you know, and make a living. I mean, worst case scenario is I'm going to make a pretty decent living teaching tennis to people. And if my dream comes true, then I'll be playing in front of people. And I went to college because I got a scholarship and I needed to hone my skills more, but it was never for the education part, which I regret to this day. But let's put that out there for the kids. I, mm -hmm. I truly regret that I put all my eggs in one basket because there's so much more to life than being a sportsman. And I think it would have rounded me off better. Yeah, I think that's that's sort of a tone, the tone of the question as well. Exactly. There's this ironic quest of the young adult eh, to, to be the pro or whatever. And then when we get there, we wonder what we were wondering uh, sometimes. <laughs> and so on. so it's just interesting that way. Uh, and then of course, be a sickness befalls and you do run into that sort of physical disaster that you had predicted. And then therefore you, you end up, I guess, in the coaching realm, which was the plan B uh, not to, not to dilute the coaching, which may in the end have given you even greater fulfillment than you originally thought, you know, when you were 11 years old, contemplating the loneliness of the professional experience. When you were 15 years old, what is a day in the life? A day in the life at 15, I would, uh, okay, during school, I'd get sure. in, I'd, I'd do my school all morning. I got out early because I was a high performance athlete. I'd train all afternoon, come home for dinner. My dad would take me out um, and drill me until the courts closed around 10 o'clock at night. And I had, um, I had arranged to have a job. Uh, I was the guy who closed the courts and turned off the, the lights at night at the public courts. So I yeah. got a small, you know, stipend every two weeks for doing that. But it was yeah. perfect because I was going to be there until 10 o'clock every night. And so it worked out just fine. So I was getting my five hours uh, plus a day from as soon as school stopped through. And then in the summer, I mean, it was it was ridiculous how much I mean, I was on the court all day. But it's so funny, John, because, I mean, everybody was guessing back then you know, on what to do. It was just a, a guess. And the guys who stood on the court more than the other guys were the guys who, yeah. who won, you know, they, yeah. they're the guys who rose, you know, and, you know, I'm sure some talent had something to do with that, but, you know, uh, after, at the end of the day, it was who hit the most balls back then. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, I was lucky because, you know, my dad had a sister that lived in Bradenton. We came from Rhode Island and I would have never gotten there without his sister living there. He decides he doesn't like the cold weather anymore. We move down and boom, I move into the land of Nick Balateri. And I was one of one of his first group when he came over from Puerto Rico with all these phenoms. Um, he set up at the Colony Beach uh, Hotel in Longboat Key. And I was one of the first 13 students he had. Hmm. I mean, that's like, I mean, so I got the best players in the world to play with. I'm a local kid, you know, I just started late. I started 11 and a half guys were winning nationals before I started hitting balls, but mm -hmm. I got to practice with the best players in the world 
every day and I just was able to rise, you know? Right. Fair enough. Uh, when you said uh, it used to be who hits the most balls, it, it seems to me that you're implying that it no longer is that. Um, so what is it now? Well, it's interesting because, you know, like you've got, I mean, in the golf side, you've got a Tiger Woods, for instance. I mean, obviously he's hit the most balls because he was doing it in his crib, you know, when back when people weren't doing it in their crib, mm-hmm. you know, people would come across golf as a kid, you know, or their dad would play and then they, they'd play and they balanced the regular life and school and what, whatever. And they, if they had a passion for it, they'd hit a lot of balls. Right. But this guy was hitting a lot of balls since he could walk. And, you know, so back then it was just a matter of, I think, volume and matched with married with some good qualities in the you know physical and the mental realm. Obviously, you can't just have one and not the other. Now, I mean, I from the tennis standpoint, my son and I, who's a high performance player, we marvel when we go to the courts and we'll see these little kids like they're six, seven, eight years old and they look like polished professionals. And back in my day, if you saw an eight year old that looked like that, he was going to be number one. Now they're just a dime a dozen. So the specialization, uh, you know, at such an early age now is a a whole new, it's a quantum shift in, and I don't know what's going to happen from it. Are they all going to burn out, you know, which we fear? Are they all going to burn out? Are they all going to have physical problems later? Or is that the only way to make it now is to start when you can walk? Immerse your whole life, make your decision at five (laughs) that you're going to be a professional athlete and do everything you can for the next 10 years. Is that the new paradigm? I don't know. Right. So you're in your mid thirties and you're getting over the hangover and now you're ready to move forward and become a coach. Is, is this all part of your angle of coaching then where you see a, a light perhaps that others don't see, which is that we should be more holistic in our approach. We should be nurturing a, a more balanced approach, or do you go in on more the uh, continuation of the voluntary um, uh, role model? When I started out, I only knew the way that I got good, you know, and that was to hit a million balls and I hit a million balls. And so um, I had no intent, desire, vision of coaching high performance tennis. I, you know, it was for me, it was coaching was with adults. I was lucky that I had a predilection or a gift for teaching people um, because like there's no adult that I couldn't make better instantly. And, you know. It just, it was, it was just, just the way it was. I was lucky that way. And at the same time, uh, a friend of mine who I was playing with, you know, in the mornings, he was, uh, he's one of the best coaches in the world. He coached Davis Cup. He coached a guy that was 30 in the world. And we were good friends and we played, you know, he comes to me one morning, he says, John, I've just seen the best kid I've seen in Canada in 20 years. Anyway, he persisted. I agreed. Kid comes out. You know, not a big kid, not a small kid, just an average kid. I uh, crack three balls, put two of them in my pocket, feed the first one in. 200 balls before he missed. This kid hit 200 balls before he missed. I'm like, okay. Anyway, about three months later, I agreed to coach him. He ended up being 60 in the world, number one in Canada. He's the Davis Cup coach now. Um, he could have been a lot higher. He just, you know, had yeah. some things missing in other areas. But I mean, so that's how I got back. That's how I got into high performance coaching. And because he was, we we're doing so well together. Uh, I guess somebody figured out that I could coach. And so I ended up being the Davis Cup coach and the national coach for Canada, like you were for golf. And, yeah. and I did all that. But the I, I swear to God, John, the only reason I got into coaching 
was because I knew in my heart that this kid could be top 10 in the world, you know, and maybe number one. And I said that publicly. I said it in interviews. Um, and he did have the talent. And he beat 10 guys in the top 10. He beat Andy Roddick when he was two in the world. He beat Nalbandian when he was two in the world, twice at Wimbledon. I mean, this guy had the package. He was just missing a couple little things that I'd rather not go into. I wanted to help this kid and I wanted to show what I could do as a coach. And for me, I was going to be done after that. I didn't, I didn't see it as a lifelong career. I wanted to, I just wanted to prove myself and, and do it. You know, we talked about this before. You said some people have seem to have a predilection to, to want to be in the fire all the mm -hmm. time. I think that if we, the people who are like that, if it wasn't sport, if it was 500 years ago or 200 years, would have been gunslingers. We would have been yeah. generals in the yeah. army. We'd have been some kind of a warrior because you're drawn to it. You're drawn to the yeah. battle. And you, you, if, I can't explain it, but that's, it seems like we're drawn to that kind of thing. Right. So is that, would you say that, would, would you say that's a requisite skill for high performance then? Is there's that sort of intangible, intuitive desire for friction and competitiveness? The second that you don't want that, go away. Yeah. Go away. Because that's where choking is. That's where shying from the moment is. And, you know, and I don't think you're born with it. I think you're like, I was a sweet, nice kid before I started tennis. And I grew up in Florida, which is one of the most vicious, cheater-filled, you know, verbal abuse <laughs> kind of places to grow up as a tennis player. The kids are vicious down there. It's just the way it is. Southern California was the same way at the time, you know, and it took me a while to get used to that. You know, it took me a while. And af then after a while, nothing can bother you, but you have to be thrown in that fire and then you have to see how you react to it. And if you want to do that, you can learn how to toughen yourself and harden yourself. But um, it's not for everyone. The want might be born and then they, you can then learn how to cultivate it, I guess, is sort of the idea. Is that fair? You know, I've had a lot of discussions with my son, Jonathan, on this. And it's like, for me, I knew what the end goal was and I was drawn to it. I don't know why, but I was drawn to being a professional. And so along the way, I mean, I really, John, honestly, I mean, I, I had good talent, but I'm not like Roger Federer or anything. I just had a good amount of talent, a good amount of physical ability. You know, uh, I'm very keen tactically, but I just kept figuring it out as I went along. You know, here's here's another challenge. The, the cheating, the kids, that I, I had to figure out how to harden myself so it wouldn't bother me anymore so I could perform, you know, and then get out, you know, with some of the best college players and they're like, unbelievable. Okay, how are they unbelievable? What do I need to do? I need to raise myself. I need to do this better. I need to hit harder, you know, and then I get on the tour. I'm like, when I got on the tour, it's like, oh, my freaking God you know, what did I get myself into? And then I sat down, I analyzed, I watched every good player I could. You saw what they did, try to adapt it to myself, kept, just kept rising, kept figuring it out. And I think a lot of guys, they get up there and they're like, oh shit. And they just, they go the other way. You gotta, you gotta figure it out. Like really want to figure it out. I can't figure it out for a guy. I can point him in the right direction, but at some point he's going to have to be responsible for, figuring it out for himself. Um, did you have, you, you mentioned when you got to the tour, you sit down, you look at all the tape, you study that, you, you, you mirror the best, uh, you know, all of those kind of things. And that's like an, uh, a personal synthesis experiment. Um, but was there, was there people that kind of opened doors for you, um, sh sh shed light in areas that you weren't looking, uh, things like that? Or did you, because you were lacking that, choose to coach because maybe you could help people by shining light in a few places? 
I figured it out for myself. Um, and then when I was coaching, I, I looked, I, I coached um, two players that I could say I coached them full time, like one on one. You know, I mean, on the Davis Cup team, like, yeah, I coached the number one doubles player in the world. You know, I, I was the coach of that team. I coached those guys. But I've lived every day with my first player for nine years. You know, I lived every day with my second player for multiple years. You know, so those are the guys that I can really put, say, my stamp was on them. Yeah. And um, I told them both from day one. And I was absolutely honest with them and myself. I said, I will. I know what I know. And I will never tell you something that I'm not sure of, absolutely positive of, you know, and having that player playing experience that I had, you know, figuring it out under fire against, you know, some of the best players in the world. I knew what I knew and I know it was right. And so that's what I try to transfer to them. You know, um, one guy was maybe over dependent on me. And the other guy, you know, he was amazing. Like he, he just, he, he was like a sponge. He absorbed, he used, he had asked all the right questions. Um, so they were two different, but really, really great guys to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes mm-hmm. two all in invested with a lot of the right ingredients. And then you can really help that guy if he really wants to be helped. And you both see the world in a similar way or in a, in a way that can work together. Yeah. You know, then you can be a great coach and he can be a great player, mm-hmm. but I truly believe that a great coach cannot make a great player. And I truly believe that a great player can figure it out on his own without a coach. Yeah. I truly yeah. figure that, feel yeah. that, you know, as you, you know, continue in your coaching of tennis and so on, why has golf become so captivating to you? What's the, what's the synergy between a competitive tennis player or a professional coach and the mastery inherent in the game of golf? First of all, I disdained golf for my whole life, which I regret because uh, my sister, who's a, you know, is a golf pro and she was a good player. She uh, tried to introduce me to it a million times. I'm like, ah, you know, I give the typical tennis player reaction. It's too slow. It's too this, too that. I mean, if I started golf when I was in my twenties, I might not have played tennis. (laughs) You know, I just, so for me, you know, I started out, it was a ball and a stick, you know, as an athlete, that seems pretty simple. And coming from tennis physically was a huge step down. Instead of having someone torturing you from side to side for four or five hours, I get to pretty much decide when I want to hit the thing. But for me, as you, you, you've done the psychological profile of me, you know, you know, I love to be alone, to be doing the same thing over and over and crafting that and trying to like my, my whole thought, I retired from tennis in 2000, and seven, the beginning of 07, um, from coaching, I immersed myself in golf. And honestly, after the first couple of months, I'd be like, I'm going to have this thing down in no time. <laughs> I've heard you speak like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's me, right? I figured yeah. I can uh, I can hit more balls than anybody yeah. in the world. I was going to use my model. I was going to hit more yeah. balls than anyone who's ever played. And, you know, I will figure this out. And, and that's the end of it. I'll be able to control the ball. Absolutely. And then, yeah. you know, yeah. I'll never lose. Right? I'll never miss. I'll never miss, as you say, in there, tennis. Yeah. Yeah. In, in tennis, I was able to do that with my Yeah, boy. I know. Exactly. But, exactly. but yeah. not with a golf ball, unfortunately. That driving inquisition that you brought to tennis to conquer it, um, solo driven and so on, doesn't work as well in golf and therefore causes you to do what? Two things sort of derailed me. I, when I started 
with the golf, I, I had the absolute intention to try to make the senior tour. Yeah, obviously, I knew at 45, you know, there's no way that I could ever, you know, become a professional golfer on the PGA Tour. But I said, you know what, give me five years. And with my physical advantages, you know, maybe that I'll be able to figure it out and how to compete with these guys. And then two things happened. Um, one thing was uh, my youngest, my oldest son, who was, you know, just eight or nine, he decided he wanted to be a tennis player. and you know, I can't do anything halfway. When he said that, I obviously said yes. And go get the he training was books. My, he was my focus, you know, yeah. and that was it. And so all of a sudden my, I mean, when I started with the golf before he's decided to play tennis, um, I, it was the spring of 2007. I was 45 and my day would be, I would arrive at Bathurst Glen driving range and I would hit balls for two and a half hours play as many holes as I could until lunchtime. I'd go back out, play as many holes as I could. Sometimes it was 36. Okay. And I did that every day for that entire year. And hmm. so, you know, I just, just, I worked it. I worked it. I worked it. I hit more balls than anybody, same kind of thing. And I was figuring out, but the other thing that derailed me was in tennis, you've got constant feedback from the other players as to if you're doing it right. Yeah. You know, and any holes you have, they will expose and you got to go back and fix them. It was a very simple process that I didn't need anyone else for, really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. With the golf, I would try things. OK, this is I didn't have a teacher. I was just doing it myself. I oh, this is happening. So let me try this and let me try that. And after you've tried 700 million things, you don't know where, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> where you started again. I kept going down rabbit holes that were derailing me and costing me time. <clears throat> If I had started with a professional like you from day one, where I didn't know anything, I had no preconceptions about anything. Uh, and this is a very important point I want to get to that something I'll share with you. And maybe you can share back with me your experience. But if I started with you with a clean slate, I, in a year, I would have been 10 times, 15 times, 20 times better because all those balls I hit would have been in the right channel not trying to figure it out on my own. Golf is the worst thing you can do, I think, to try to figure it out on your own early on. Hmm. Maybe later on, once you get a solid base and everything, then you have to see what maybe what works for you individually, what works with your brain, your body. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, what, is, what is it about um, the game of golf then that is like so captivating for you, it's, it's, despite its challenges and rabbit holes and all, or maybe that's part of it, I guess, because this is a guy who likes the fire and likes to, dive into things and, and so on, obviously with your previous life as a tennis uh, professional tennis player, what's the why factor for you? It's, you know, for me, it's the quest to control that ball and your body and your mind to get everything to where on demand, you can do what you want to do, you know? And I know, I mean, I watch these guys on TV and, you know, the producers are great. They only show you the 30 foot putts they roll in. They don't show you most of the time when they miss the three footer, you know, or, you know, they, they've got a simple par three of, you know, of 180 yards and they're off in the trees or the bunker somewhere. They miss all the time, you mm -hmm. know, and but for some reason, it's always been with me that there's there is a way to control this thing. There is a really way a way to control. I mean, I think I guess Mo Norman had gotten to that level. Mm -hmm. All the legends, I would have loved to seen it for myself, but the legends about Hogan. I mean, right. if you listen to these guys, the guy could drop it on a dime anywhere, mm -hmm. anytime. Now, 
I mean, how come he didn't shoot 59 all the time if he was that good? But right. okay. <laughs> you know, but these yeah. guys were, you know, a couple of guys have seemed to where they could almost get to that point. And I, I just feel like it's, it's possible. Okay. I haven't been able to do it yet, but yeah. I feel like it's possible. Yeah. And the quest yeah. for that drives me more than going out and shooting a score. Honest to God. Yeah. Yeah. Control the ball. Control of, you know, and, and not just the ball, but I mean, yeah, I'm working yeah, yeah, yeah. with right yeah. now. I'm, I'm, I'm really diving into for myself, for my golf locus of attention. Um, I, I've got it distilled to the point for myself to where I'm repeatable enough that if my locus of attention is where it's supposed to be, the ball will go where I'm sending it all the time. <laughs> and what I find is, and I think this is for everybody, but you'd have to, you'd, you'd have to answer that, you know, for me, I, my instinct says it's for everybody. Um, let's say my, for me, the optimal locus of attention is the back of the ball. Okay. For some people it might be, that's external for me, which is good. Um, external locus, uh, maybe it's the target for some people, you know, but my optimal external locus is the back of the ball. And if I can completely maintain my locus of attention, my focus on the back of that ball, that ball will go where I'm sending it 99.9% of the time. The problem that I face, and I imagine it's for a lot of people, is I'm drawing the club back, so I'm in movement. And as, as humans, we can only focus on one thing at a time. If, if my attention gets diverted to my backswing, for instance, um, my contact won't be good or I'll be offline or whatever. So I'm really trying to figure out a way for myself to absolutely control my locus of attention. If I can do that, I'll save five, six, seven strokes, I think. Uh, I've got a, a, a task called rapid fire here as we close off the first of perhaps many interviews here. Um, so if you don't mind, I'd like you to choose between hitting a cut or hitting a draw. If I had to choose, it would be a cut. Uh, would you wear a glove or no glove? Glove hybrid or a driving iron i'd prefer to use a driving iron would you play with music or no music as a tool music if i had the right beat for my swing i would use the music but i wouldn't use it to distract myself or to shut everybody out or anything like that are you a grip it and rip it kind of guy or are you a tactical conservative kind of guy <laughs> I, I don't do anything without preparation consideration thoughtfulness just not me do you use a Bushnell when you play or do you play by feel? A completely numbers guy. Uh, would you prefer to play a Lynx course or a Parkland course? Parkland. And do you prefer playing at sunrise or sunset? Oh, sunset is heaven. I mean, I just, I don't even want to play at sunset. I want to practice, be the only guy out there at sunset and let it last for four or five hours, please. And fresh balls, a new glove. Yeah. Heaven, heaven. You want uh, them to give you the keys to turn out the lights at the end. That would be well, the perfect thing for you. Uh, you you know, stay that extra half hour. Yeah. I mean, if I was a billionaire, I'd just build my own course and be done with it. <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks for your time today, though, John. If you don't mind, let's just set next week as a good time, and we'll do it on Zoom again, and, and we'll keep these going for the next little while. I'd really appreciate it, only under one condition. I need these back because I'm going to be listening for the rest of my life. It's going to be fantastic. Cool. Oh, what a what a beauty and that was such a cool discussion uh i love that guy's energy and some of his insights into his performance life and also his uh coaching life 
in tennis, but then how he's transitioned it into his golf experience, which is so cool to hear. Well, what's so cool about John, uh, first of all, in the interview, I didn't know that he had run into health problems that hampered his development and his trajectory. But when you meet him as a person, you know, he is truly a rare, rare breed in the sense of his single-minded attentional focus. It's like remarkable to watch him practice the game of golf. You can see why he is successful in everything he does because he's so single-mindedly attentive. Um, it's tragic, you know, that he had the health issues or whatever because he, well, I mean, not tragic, it just pushed him into another direction and it's fine. And he's, you know, he's a great dude and a great citizen of the world. And, you know, he hasn't missed a beat, you know what I mean? But in terms of him, like maybe being one of the great tennis players or whatever, you know, you got to believe in a guy who, who's like this because he truly has like this steely gaze that you read about, you know, that's like just very unique. Um, so cool guy that way in terms of putting the context in there and so on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very kind of uh, intense energy that I know I kind of found myself attracted to as I listened to him talk and, uh, and how you describe him over your interactions uh, in your relationship. So many cool little insights into uh, how he sees performance and development as people pursue whatever it is that they're pursuing. The the being in the fire and the warrior mindset really drew something out for me there. And as well as I think he had so many cool kind of common themes that golfers talk about in trying to figure out how to master this game of golf and uh, the rabbit holes costing him times and the pursuit of trying to control the ball. Although he was onto some uh, some pretty cool ideas with his locus of attention and uh, using music as a tool and uh, two things that really stood out to me as like, this guy is onto something and he must be hanging out with a pretty good coach named John Roy a fair amount. Anyway, it is uh, time to wrap up. Everybody, enjoy your day today. Take the time, sit down, make sure you're not missing that back nine at Augusta National this afternoon. I'm sure it will have something in stores for us that you will not want to miss out on. As always, feel free to reach out to us. Let us know if you have any questions or comments on today's episode or any other previous episodes. Would love to hear from you guys. And until next week, keep celebrating all that is pure in the game we love. If you like the show, please subscribe and tell a friend or write a review. We look forward to continuing this journey with you all.